Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, March 9th, we are studying Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. A rich young man comes to Jesus and he questions the Lord as to what he must do to have eternal life. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ today as we study God's word, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Luke Zimmerman. Pastor Zimmerman serves at Calvary Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Pastor Zimmerman, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks, Pastor Apple. It's good to be back with you studying our Lord's words. Pastor Zimmerman, as we get started this morning, give us some context here in Matthew chapter 19. Where are we picking up? What do we need to know going into the text today? Well, sure, that's a good way to kind of start to try to figure out where our text kind of sets in the Gospel of Matthew, what the evangelist is telling us about our Lord's words and works for salvation. And so if you take a look at the scriptures and you you were going to be looking at Matthew 19, but right before Matthew 19, you had Jesus giving some teaching uh, about what life is like within the community of disciples. So that's where we have our kind of one of our most famous statements of Jesus, where he talks about, you know, the things that tempt you to sin, cut them off so you can enter into eternal life holy. Um, you also have the Matthew 18 that maybe a lot of our congregations uh, are familiar with, the process about how do you address someone who has uh, sinned against you, committed an offense against you. And then, of course, Jesus' real famous parable about the unforgiving servant, which, of course, is really kind of an explanation about what it means to forgive people as they trespass against us. So you have Jesus giving this teaching and then it's kind of like it wraps up. And then Matthew tells us at the beginning of chapter 19 that Jesus is on the move again. And he's on the move from Galilee to Judea. And, of course, as we're going through the season of Lent now, we all know that the ultimate destination is going to be Jerusalem. But before Jesus gets to Jerusalem at Passover, there are still a couple things that Matthew is going to tell us about happens in Jesus' life. And this is one of them, that in Matthew 19, as Jesus is on the move, he gets a whole bunch of questions from people who seem not to be part of his group. So it's like you have the group of Jesus' followers headed towards Jerusalem, and on the way, as they encounter various people, these other people are asking questions of Jesus. Some of them kind of pejorative questions, some of them just kind of really asking questions, you know, and this is what we're going to get in our study today is this real interesting asking question about how to get eternal life. Yeah, in, in Matthew 19, the first people that come to Jesus with a question are the Pharisees, and, and there Matthew's telling us up front that they're testing Jesus. The disciples have a bit of reflection with Jesus after that conversation. The next group of people are, are children. 
that are brought to him. And, and that's surprising. The disciples particularly don't seem to, to get it, but Jesus is welcoming the little children. So, so far in Matthew 19, you, you've got one group that's coming at him to test, one group that's that's coming to him to receive blessing. And now here comes this this third person, this rich young man. And, and maybe the question we should consider is, which which group is he going to fit in with? Is he going to fit in better with the Pharisees, or is he going to be coming to Jesus as one of these little children? So with that in mind, Let's go ahead and, and take a look now at the text for today. Matthew chapter 19, beginning at verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him, to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. There's the text for today, Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. Pastor Zimmerman, as the text starts, we Matthew draws our attention. Behold, this man comes up to him. He doesn't tell us anything about this man right away. We learn more as the text goes on. But this man comes to Jesus and asks him concerning eternal life. What, what do you think of this man's question to Jesus, Pastor Zimmerman? Well, this would be kind of the question if I would think of a person came up to me asking that question. I'd be like, that's a lot better than some of the questions I get as a pastor. <laughs> it, it is a question that at least reveals that this man has some concern about things beyond this world and beyond this lifetime. And so already, at the very least, there is something in his mind about greater things greater things than this world, which will ultimately pass away. Yeah, we have life in this world, but we know that life in this world is not everlasting. It will always come to an end. No matter how much we try, death will ultimately come to us at some point. And so this man knows something, at least, at least about the concept of eternal life, which is assuming that he is a Jewish person, which is probably the best way to assume it. Uh, based on what the text tells us, you know, that this is not a Gentile, but someone who is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and who is familiar 
with what the Lord had said in the scriptures, at least somewhat, and knows something about the hope of a life beyond this one, beyond the vanity, if you will, of this life. And so this is like the best jumping off point. But the question is going to be now when this person brings this inquiry about everlasting life, and he will get an answer from Jesus, the question is going to be, what does he do with the answer that Jesus gives him? Is there going to be a reception of the answer that Jesus gives him? Or is there going to be a rejection of the answer that Jesus gives him? Because Jesus will tell him. Jesus will tell him what is necessary for eternal life. So if the man has that question and he gets an answer, then the kind of the issue is, are you going to listen to the one who can actually direct you to that eternal life you are asking about? He, he names Jesus teacher in addressing him, which generally in Matthew's gospel, teacher's not the address of disciples. Maybe, maybe a bit of a hint there as to what, what we can expect from this man going forward as to how he's going to receive Jesus. He also, he also comes at Jesus with a, it seems with a presupposition, right? What, what good thing or what, what good do I have to do to, to receive eternal life? So this man, it seems, would equate getting to eternal life with his own doing of something, particularly of doing something good. And that word good is what Jesus picks up on in his response initially. So how does, how does Jesus respond to this man's question? Well, you see, first off, you have Jesus going to say, all right, if you want to talk about what's good, <laughs> there's one person or one thing, or, or as, we, as we translate it, there is only one who is good. Now, of course, that should not be a surprise either, at least for someone who's an Israelite, someone who understands what had been spoken in, in the books of Moses or in the, uh, in the prophets or the Psalter or anything like that, the wisdom literature. There's a talk about the one who is actually good, and then there's plenty of talk about the things which are not good. And being the things that are good are always connected to the one who is good, who is Yahweh, the Lord. And so there, there is something already that the man at least should know something about goodness. And again, we are under the assumption, and I think rightly so, that he actually would have been somewhat familiar with that idea about Yahweh, the Lord, being the only truly good one. And of course, the only truly good one, the Lord, had already spoken about what he called good and what he called evil. And, of course, Jesus says that's mentioned in the commandments, the Decalogue, or what we call the Ten Commandments. Hmm. So already it's like, all right, we're going to familiarize you a little bit with what you know, and let's move your question maybe off of a premise that, will be partially misguided and not get you to the result that you really need, but we're going to utilize things that you already know to help you get off this premise, which isn't actually correct, that eternal life will not ultimately be about the good you can do, because the good you can do will never actually get you to match the standard of goodness that the only good one has established. 
right? Eternal life will not come from the good that you do. It will only come from the one who is good. And it it seems that Jesus already in his initial response to the man would would want him to reflect upon the very person he's talking to, right? I mean, why do you ask me about what is good? Inviting this rich young man to to reflect upon the one he's talking to. What what qualifies Jesus to speak about the good? And and as as readers of Matthew's gospel, as Christians, well, I think the answer we ought to to give and what Jesus would would draw this man towards here is a reflection upon and a confession of that that Jesus is the one who is good, the Lord who is good in the Old Testament. He's here in the flesh in Jesus. Do we can we get that out of Jesus' words here, Pastor Zimmerman? Yeah, I, I think we can. Yes. Um, and, and again, really what's going to be ultimately at, at point in this conversation is what, what is this rich young man going to be thinking about Jesus? You know, um, because it's going to be kind of the question of will he receive the answer that Jesus is going to give? And then there's also um, the question about will he follow Jesus, which is ultimately what he's going to be called to do when we get down into the answer that Jesus gives to him. But, but the issue, like, why, why would I follow Jesus? Do I follow Jesus simply because he's a teacher who, who tells me interesting things? He's a teacher who gives me wisdom. Or am I actually going to follow him because he is the truly good one, the one who has the righteousness which exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, which was mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount earlier in Matthew's Gospel, the good one who has come in the flesh and who's going to open up eternal life for the people who receive the works that he does, the work that the good one does, which opens up eternal life, not the work that this rich young man or anyone else could do. Hmm. So the, the rich young man here keys in on the, the last part of Jesus' response, where Jesus says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And, and the rich young man I mean, asks a natural question. He says, which ones? And Jesus responds with, with words that are, I think, familiar to us. We, we know these commandments, and yet there's a few missing, it seems, and they're not quite in the order that we usually learn them, say, in catechism class. How, how do, what do you make of Jesus' answer to the questions, or to the question, which ones? Sure. So if we take a look at the answer Jesus gives, of course, he is giving instruction from the commandments that were given uh, by the Lord through Moses at Mount Sinai. So all our listeners will be like, oh, yeah, you shall not murder. I, yeah, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. And of course, those were statements which the Lord did give uh, on the tablets handed down to Moses and that Moses would teach the Israelites. And that was passed down through the generations. But what's interesting are they are the commandments that we sometimes call, when we're teaching our catechism class, the second table of the law. So they're the commandments which are the instructions that the Lord gives about how I'm supposed to behave towards other people. In particular, how am I supposed to treat the things which the Lord has given to my neighbors? So the Lord has given life to my neighbor, so I can't take it away from him. Uh, the Lord has given a spouse to my neighbor, so I can't uh, ruin that marital relationship. Uh, the Lord allows my neighbor to have property, so I can't steal the things, take the things from him. The Lord gives the gift of a reputation, so it's not, 
it's not permissible for me to damage that reputation. So all these things that really, in some ways, um, how we show love for our neighbor based on these instructions that, that God gives to us. But what they're interesting, uh, what's kind of interesting about them is they're not the commandments that instruct us about our behavior or our attitude towards the Lord and his holy things. And they're also not the commandments at the tail end of the Decalogue, which deal with kind of matters of the heart, which are the commandments that prohibit coveting. So these commandments that Jesus tells him are all ones that have to deal with behavior towards the neighbor, and they are dealing primarily with these external or observable behaviors. You know, do I strike my neighbor because I'm angry at him? You know, do I, you know, um, break up the marriage of my neighbor because I, you know, take his or her spouse away? Do I literally pilfer things from my neighbor, you know, taking his property? Do Am I seen in the community and heard in the community slandering my neighbor? All those things are uh, uh, you know, actions which can be evaluated. People can see what I do. But part of the thing is like when it comes to the matters of belief, those aren't always seen or the matters of the heart, which Jesus hasn't really touched on on those commandments. So Jesus sticks with the outward behaviors here. It's you know I I, I kind of skipped over this, but as I was listening to you and reflecting upon this this interaction here, the fact that the rich man asks which ones, what what did he think Jesus was going to say? Did did he think that that Jesus was going to say, well, you can keep these, but these other ones you can ignore? I mean, the, he's talking about the commandments here, right? The, <laughs> did. Are there are there commandments that we are free to ignore? What's I, and I, I know maybe that's not something the text is going to answer for us specifically, but what's what's going on in this in this young man's mind that he's asking which ones as if there are commandments that that he was free to ignore or didn't have to keep, and and maybe that that same thought is is evident in how he responds to Jesus. Jesus has laid out the outward commands, the second table, the law, those that at least in terms of our outward actions can be evaluated. And and the young man says, "Well, I've done these things. What what am I lacking?" And and I think to to us today, especially as as Lutherans, we hear we hear this man say, "I've kept these commandments." And we think he's he's full of pride. How could he possibly say that? Don't you know that you're a sinner? But but uh, what do you what do you think of of this man's response about his his claim to have kept the commandments, Pastor Zimmerman? Well, yeah, maybe before even just touching that on slightly is your question about like did he expect other commandments to be mentioned? Which which is actually a great it's a great kind of question and it's, it's somewhat speculative the answers we might give, um, but it might also be touched in the even the title that he gave to Jesus, calling him teacher. And the kind of the question would be, what, what were the other teachers of the law going out and saying? And of course, we learn about all like the rabbinical debates that were going on or, the, you, know, you know, the perspective of the Pharisees about all the other commandments, you know, the ones that they kind of instituted to maybe try to fence off the law, to fence off the, the Decalogue. Um, 
So maybe there's something there. Uh, when it comes ultimately, though, to his response, I mean, I think he could kind of say, as we as we mostly say, if we were to if we were to observe much of our behavior, and I think many of our listeners would, you could kind of say, yes, if I really take the commandments at their you know face value and kind of defined in the most basic way, I could say, yeah, I I. I have kept them, right? I mean, many of us could might be able to point to the part that, no, I really have not actually stolen something from my neighbor, or I have not actually ended the life of my neighbor. But then again, when we hear our Lord Jesus teach on these commandments, which like the Sermon on the Mount earlier in Matthew's Gospel again provided, he's like, oh, no, no, these, these commandments are not just taken on face value, just in the most limited way of application they are much deeper but he can let the, he can kind of let the rich young man say well yeah i've kept them all right and in some ways it's almost like jesus you know having like a fish on the line we'll we'll, we'll let him we'll let him go out and the question is can we hook him back in to actually really considering what it would mean to keep these commandments and ultimately to keep the will of God, to fulfill the will of God, which is really what Jesus is going to posit to him when he responds to the man's question, what do I still lack? I've kept all these commandments. Okay, well, now we're going to reel you in here with this answer where he says, you know, if you be perfect, then go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Because that response is going to get to the real heart of the matter, which is really the matter of the heart. And to what is this man devoted? And what is he trusting in? And what is he loving? So, so for the sake of argument, then, Jesus basically lets the young man have his, have his point. Look, I, I kept these things. Jesus says, okay, okay, let, let's, let's say that you have kept these things. And, and the question then, well, what, what is this? rich young man still lack, Jesus gives his answer, which you said goes to the, the heart of the matter, Pastor Zimmerman. What is the heart of the answer that Jesus is giving here in verses in verse 21? So here's what he ultimately has to do. With the young man is then given the instructions. Okay, fine. You've kept these You've kept these things. You've, you've kept the second table a lot. Let's just, you know, kind of, you know, for sake of argument, we'll grant that. Now let's think about some of the other commandments, because Jesus only listed several of them. He didn't list all ten. And so when he gives the instructions, okay, if you would be perfect, if you would be complete, if you would be whole, um, what are you going to do with your possessions? What do you think about them? Do you love them? Are they what you trust in? How about what do you really think about me? Are you willing to actually come and follow me, which is to actually have, recognize me as Lord, to recognize me as the one to whom you are to be devoted, to recognize me as the one to trust in because I am going to actually provide you with eternal life, which is really the way the Lord speaks about himself in the Old Testament ultimately is that he calls the Israelites to be devoted to him and not devoted to Baal or any of the other gods. 
and not to trust in the things they own or their own strength. And even when he says, I've chosen you to me by people, he says, I didn't choose you because you were the biggest group of people. I didn't choose you because you had like some innate power in you. I have favorably or ingraciously selected you. And your eternal life will be dependent upon being devoted and trusting in me. And really, that's what Jesus is going to be posing to this young man. What are you going to be devoted to? What is your object of trust? What is your object of devotion? What do you love? So this, there's two parts to Jesus' answer then, right? I mean, the first part is, is go sell what you have and give it to the poor. And then the second is follow me. We've got a minute and a half or so left here before the break, Mr. Zimmerman, but why, why is it important to keep those two things together and not lose either part? Okay, well, you need to kind of keep it together because there is the matter of really the relationship that this man could have with Jesus, who is the good one, who is the one who can give eternal life. That's what Jesus will be able to produce for the man, give to the man. If he doesn't have that, then it wouldn't matter how charitable he is. There are plenty of people who are charitable, who actually give away most, if not almost all, the things they have, but do not have love for the Lord. Well, as great as that charitable action can be given, and we call it an act of righteousness before mankind, you know, you know in these kind of two kinds of righteousness idea, or how we how we behave amongst our people and judge by people, they really are lacking the righteous status before God. And so this is the kind of the real question he has to have is what is he loving in that matter? And when he actually, Jesus actually tells him to sell his possessions and give to the poor. Yes, he is giving moral instruction to him, but he's also really getting at the point that the man has a love for something else besides God, and if he would maintain that love of something else, it's actually going to prevent him from ultimately receiving the eternal life which the Lord wants to give. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFO. We're looking at Matthew chapter 19, the last half of it with Pastor Luke Zimmerman. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Monday, March 9th, we're looking at Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30, with Pastor Luke Zimmerman of Calvary Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Pastor Zimmerman, prior to the break, we, we made it through Jesus' ultimate response to this rich young man. He tells him to go sell what he has, give it to the poor, and then follow Jesus. How does the rich young man respond? He goes away sorrowful because he had many possessions. 
And so our our question at the beginning of our broadcast about, you know, you in chapter 19 where you had the two groups of people, the Pharisees and the children, and which group would this rich young man ultimately find himself in? Well, it's not the ones who receive the kingdom of heaven. He goes away sorrowful. And he goes away sorrowful because, well, Jesus has really uncovered what the man loves and trusts. The instruction Jesus gives to him, which if it would be followed, would remove the competitor. In essence, like what is competing for this man's love and devotion? What is competing with the Lord for this man's love and devotion? For this rich young man, it's his possessions. He loves them, and he can't break himself from that. And so when Jesus is actually giving him the instruction to do so and then to come follow him and come have that eternal life, it's that the man has a devotion to these temporal things that are going to end up preventing him from ultimately receiving the eternal things, which Jesus could give him. So and finally, oh, go ahead, Pastor Zimmerman. Yeah, keep going, keep going. Yeah, it, it's, remi- it, it's reminiscent of the instruction Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount about, you know, not being able to serve God and mammon, God and money. These things that are competing for the devotion of our heart and soul. So, so finally, then, it, it seems that this conversation does come down to a matter of the first commandment. Even though Jesus didn't specifically mention it in that list of commandments that he gave, ultimately, this is a matter of who, what God does this rich young man have? It, it's, it's about who does, he, who does he trust, or what does he trust in this case? And it's, it's not Jesus. It's not the one true God. It's, it's rather his money. Finally, Jesus has brought this man to the first commandment. He's, he's going to ignore the other commandments for the time being. We'll, we'll deal with those. Let's see what's really going on with the first commandment. And that one is, is already messed up, right? Yep. It's, it's, it's already messed up. It's ultimately the issue that the man has. And, and Jesus could be like, I'll, I'll get to that point. <laughs> uh, Jesus could be saying, I'm patient, I'm long-suffering, I can have this conversation with you as long as you want, but I will finally get to this point. And now the question will be, how will you respond to this truth that I just laid down on you? And really that the man shows a fear, love, and trust in other things besides God. But Jesus isn't done talking about money yet, right? It's it's not going to be that easy, if you will, to, to say to say that, well, it's, it's just a first commandment thing and, and my money is unimportant, because now he's going to turn to his disciples and begin to talk more about riches and, and money. So what does is, what is Jesus now turn to his disciples and begin to teach them, Pastor Zimmerman? Well, he uses, he uses this young man as actually kind of an example. He's, the young man is a concrete example of a difficulty that people in this world will face. Now, there are going to be many difficulties that people in this world will face to following the way of life that God establishes. Each of us has sins and besetting sins. Each of us have competitors for the love and devotion that God demands from us. For those who have wealth, wealth makes it easy to have a competitor for the love and devotion that God demands. 
And that's why he says, you know, the, the people, the rich person, you know, they, they, they can enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus does not say it is impossible for those with wealth to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he says it, there will be a difficulty. And, and the difficulty is overcoming the appeal that these riches and or possessions or wealth have in this world. It is kind of like the temporal God. And we can measure how much blessing. Again, I've been referring to, uh, you know, that that kind of personification of wealth that Jesus uses, that mammon talk uh, from the Sermon on the Mount. And you can almost think of it, you can almost think it's like if there were a God of wealth, that, that this God of wealth has shown so many blessings to these rich people in this temporal, you know, in, in this temporal world. That it's like, oh, well, I mean, look how much blessing I've gotten from this God. Again, not that Mammon actually is a deity or is a God, uh, but you can kind of think of it that way. And, and now Jesus is like, okay, but I'm the only true God, and I'm actually going to demand love and devotion uh, from you. And that will mean you may have to actually put away these things that you are uh, loving and are devoted to. And it, and it, and it stings. It's hard. Um, it tugs at the heartstrings, literally, or maybe you might say tugs at the soul strings. You know, these attachments that we have to things in this world which are competing with the attachments and devotion we're supposed to have to the Lord himself. Jesus uses a, a vivid illustration here. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What does that, what does that mean? What's Jesus talking about with a camel going through the eye of a needle? Well, we can we can all envision a camel. At least most of us, I think, we may have seen one in the uh, zoo. Although some of us, are, some of our listeners, may have actually seen camels in in real life, um, even closer up than a zoo. They're big. <laughs> they're big animals. I mean, I mean, in some ways, they're one. I mean, you, know, you can kind of think of like in the ancient Near East, they're one of the biggest animals that anyone kind of living in first century Judea would have seen. I mean, yeah, there's elephants and things, but they don't usually get brought to ancient near Israel, I guess, you know. So it's like one of the biggest animals. And everyone knew what a needle was. You know, they, they sewed, you know, people sewed, and they, and they, you know, making their clothing or repairing clothing. And you, when you, you know, put that thread through the eye of the needle. You're like, I mean, how many times? I mean, I know I've had to like sew buttons on shirts and things and, and getting that thread through that needle is hard. And you look how thin that thread is. Now you imagine, how can I stick that camel through that hole? And it's like, I'm not even sure if I could actually figure out as much like uh, oomph to just push it through and I don't even know what the camel would look like on the other side going through that. <laughs> he kind of is setting up almost like a hyperbolic sort of thing. It, it is basically impossible for that to happen. Mm-hmm. But and, and it seems – oh, go ahead, keep, keep going. Know, keep going. Yeah. But, he, he, but he does know the possibility, and he will talk about the possibility. What will make this seemingly impossible thing possible is going to be – not left up ultimately to anyone's effort. It's going to be ultimately left up to having God himself working for these individuals, as it will be for any of us to enter into the kingdom of God. 
Now, the disciples are, are obviously pretty surprised by this. The, the text says that they were greatly astonished. Who then can be saved? Why, why are the disciples so surprised by what Jesus has said about, about the near impossibility of a rich person entering God's kingdom? Well, they're, they're, they're a little kind of surprised because there are some understandings. We, we kind of get the impression that wealth and piety were understood as actually blessings. Now, they go hand in hand, wealth and piety. In fact, we can find examples in the Old Testament about wealthy and pious people. Abraham, for example, is not a poor man. <laughs> if you read Genesis, you know, I mean, he's got I just, you know, you know, flocks galore. He's got riches from, you know, all sorts of his enterprises. Um, but he also had devotion to God, right? And that faith in God was credited to him as righteousness. Uh, Job, another example in the Old Testament, a, a wealthy man who actually also showed piety. And so these people could have been set out. It's like, you know, this is like the, the epitome. You know, you get these blessings from God, the God who called you to be his people. And they got all this like wealth and, and, and these uh, riches in this world. And it'd be like, oh, these are like God's blessings. But now Jesus says, oh, yeah, all those things that you might count as blessings might actually be the impediments for you to enter the kingdom of God. And be like, oh, oh, well, we didn't necessarily think of that. And we've got property. I mean, the disciples are not poor. At least some of them weren't. Um, If you actually would have. If you think about, uh, you know, uh, the sons of Zebedee and Peter and Andrew, I mean, they would not be considered poor. I mean, they had like their fishing business and it was actually profitable because they were having employees. And and Matthew, I mean, tax collecting, I mean, I know a lot of it was sweeping money under the table, but it was not an impoverished, you know, way of making a living. So some of these people had money. Um, and now Jesus is basically saying, yeah, that money stuff isn't really necessarily a blessing. And that's kind of turned their common understanding about wealth on its head. I appreciate you bringing out the disciples themselves and, and what their careers would have been beforehand. And, and even, I think, you know, the possessions they would have had with them at that moment, we know there was a, a money bag that Judas kept, and, and he liked to help himself to it, as, as John tells us. But, but they they had possessions even themselves, and I, I think that that invites us to reflect upon at least a bit. You know, what what does it mean to be a rich person? Jesus says that it's it's only with great difficulty that a rich person is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, what what does that what does that mean? Is there a is there a certain level of, of riches that you, you have to qualify for, and then you're the rich person that, that Jesus is talking about, but if you're below that, then that's not really your difficulty? And and the reason I bring that up is because I think I think as we start to consider mammon and riches and wealth, we see how, how easy it is for any of us, regardless of, of you know, if, if we're the, so what is it, the one percenters, um, you know, even if, mm-hmm. if we're there or we're, or we're not, that mammon can be our God, that, that if we have it, we want more of it. And if we don't have it, that's what we're trying to get. And, and so, so we can still fall into this sort of self-justification. And even that, that question that I asked, you know, what does, it quali- what does it mean to be a rich person could be an attempt of ours to, to justify ourselves and, and an attempt to, to save ourselves rather than to let Jesus 
be the one who justifies us. I don't know. Further reflections, Pastor Zimmerman. Yeah, I think basically the definition of rich um, would be adjustable, um, meaning basically if, if, if you, through the possessions and things you have, can determine your own temporal security, mm. you're rich. I, I, I would just kind of leave it at, at that kind of definition. Um, and that will, that will vary from place to place. I mean, if we were to be airdropped into, you know, first century Judea, I mean, we'd be, we'd be wealthy. <laughs> I mean, there, there would be no doubt. We would be all kind of upper 5%, 1% with the type of things that we have. Uh, but if you take us and drop us, you know, if most of our listeners, if you would drop us, in, you know, one of those economic, you know, roundtable things or retreats they have like in Davos, you know, where all the billionaires come in, we'd be saying, well, we're poor. <laughs> well, yeah, it is relative. And yet, if we can kind of determine our own security in this world, that's really kind of a definition of rich because it's the thing that tempts us from being dependent on God and being self-dependent or trusting in the temporal things instead of the eternal. Right. And and even even if you don't meet that, like even if, if you're not at that level yet, so you're you would be considered poor based on whatever level it is, when whatever context it is, you haven't met that level, but but that's what you're trying to get to. You're you're looking to that for security, even if you never get there. But that's what you think is going to make you secure. You're you're still, I think, qualifying as as this rich person because that's what's standing in your way and and mammon money is is just such a, a terribly tempting idol because it, it would seem to promise us security in this life whether we have it or we're striving to get it we we think that it's going to to make life okay it's going to make life better it and and it makes promises but like any idol it just mm-hmm. can't deliver it just can't deliver because it's it's an idol and it, it's not a true god and it will always let us down at one point or another so so jesus i mean all of this is going through the the minds of the disciples their their world's been pretty i mean turned upside down jesus once again is is giving them something that's that's throwing them for a loop and and Jesus after their well, how does Jesus answer their question? Who then can be saved? This is this is the gospel right here. Right. So he says, okay, well, with man this is impossible. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is completely impossible with man, with man's powers, with man's intellect, with man's abilities, with man's devices, whatever you want to substitute in there, whatever man can provide, it will not be possible. But with God, all things are possible. With, with God, everything can be made to happen uh, according to his good and gracious will. And that's what the people need. The people need to have divine activity happening among them. They need to have that divine activity that regenerates their hearts and minds. They need that divine activity which is going to break their devotion to possessions. They need that divine activity that's going to turn them from idolatry of mammon to trust in the Lord. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. That's, that's God's power. That's God's activity happening among people. And that's what actually brings people into the kingdom of heaven or into the kingdom of God, as uh, is referred to in Matthew's gospel here. And Jesus has that ready and triggered to go. 
as the people receive the teachings, the truth, the truth that this truly and only good one is bringing and saying, I am going to actually bring you a goodness and righteousness that will bring you into the kingdom of God. Receive it from me. So, so Jesus here, and just maybe we should just make this plain because it's, it's maybe a question on, on many folks' minds, is Jesus is not here teaching any sort of righteousness. His conversation with the rich young man and, and his instruction to his disciples has not been just some sort of make sure you check the box of giving away all your stuff and then you're good to go. But, but rather this is a matter of receiving salvation, eternal life from the only one who is good, a righteousness that is not your own, but the one that comes from Jesus Christ. This is the salvation that he's teaching even here. Yes, it is the salvation he's teaching here. And again, kind of going back a little bit earlier in our conversation, there are plenty of people who could actually be selfless and charitable and, and, and forsake the riches of this world and become hermits out in the middle of nowhere. But if they do not have the love of God and do not receive the benefits which God himself brings and only God himself brings, those things would not actually be uh, really worth anything, which is kind of like what Paul says, right? In like 1 Corinthians 13, right? It's about, you know, giving away everything and, and that. It's like, if I don't have love, then it's really kind of pointless, <laughs> you know, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Now, now, Peter, and I would say the others too, look at this, and they, they have a question for Jesus. Well, well Jesus didn't didn't we do that? Is is that where, where Peter's question comes from in verse 27? Yeah, I think that's the best way to look at it, because it's following right on that. It's like, okay, all right, well, we have left everything and followed you, okay? We, we seem to be ones who have done what you actually told that rich young man to do. And, uh, and he's right. Uh, Peter is correct. They, they did leave everything follow you, right? I mean, we read that in the gospel. They left their nets and followed Jesus. Uh, Levi, Matthew comes from the text booth and follows Jesus. Uh, what Simon the Zealot, I guess, gives up his burgeoning political activist career, <laughs> whatever that was going to be, and goes and follows Jesus. Yes, they've given up these things. And what Peter is kind of wanting to know is like, all right, our are we going to miss the kingdom of God? Uh, because, you know, we've seen this rich young man that we all would have thought would have been like the perfect example of someone being saved. All right, that's not it. We've seen the Pharisees, and we know them apparently aren't it. Uh, the kids that Jesus pointed out as the example earlier in, in, in the chapter, okay, uh, where do we fit? Are we in the group? Are we not in the group? You know, where are we? And this is where Jesus actually gives then a reassuring answer to them that, yes, they, they are in the kingdom of God. They were the ones who have been receiving him as the only truly good one and are going to receive the benefits that he comes to offer. So in, in Jesus' answer, then, this comforting, reassuring answer that he, he gives, what does he have to say to the apostles particularly, this matter of 12 thr- thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel? And then how does Jesus broaden that to all who would receive him in this sort of faith? All right. So you have Peter and the other 12 um, 
um, uh, it will not include Judas Iscariot, who will ultimately be replaced by Matthias. But uh, as, as we know the, how the story shakes out. But he says, you know, you who have actually followed me, you are going to now, when, when everything is revealed, when everything is shown in this new world or the regenerated world, or almost like in some ways, almost like new age, but not in the weird new age way. Um, that when this happens, and we're going to see everything ruled properly, ordered properly, the way God wishes it to be, with no competitors for love or devotion, no false deities, no no false faith, all that stuff removed. That you who actually did abandon your lives to follow me will actually be exalted. You are going to be in the kingdom of heaven. They're going to be office holders in the kingdom of heaven. They're going to be people recognized by all the others in the kingdom of heaven as the ones whom Jesus directly called and had set over his church as, as the apostles would be. What about what about the others in the king? Verse twenty nine seems to broaden it then beyond the apostles. What does Jesus have to say to those? Right. So Jesus doesn't leave it there because that would be like, okay, well that's wonderful for Peter and Andrew and James and John. Uh, okay, but but we understand that the kingdom of heaven uh, will not just be limited to twelve people. It's going to have countless, you know, myriads of myriads of people, thousands of thousands. And Jesus says there's going to be everybody who has done this because everybody that I have called to follow me are going to be putting aside things of this world. There is always some sort of suffering of loss of earthly things in order to be a disciple of Jesus. Because at some point, the earthly things are going to be competitors to the devotion and love and trust that, that needs to be placed in Christ himself. And so Jesus knows that. He knows it. He knows it because in some ways he's actually demonstrating it when he actually, you know, um, empties himself and becomes the great servant of all in order to accomplish salvation for the world. And now he sees the people who are, he calls to follow him also doing the, those things and say, yeah, there are these things in this world that you could have loved and been devoted to and could have prevented you from actually following me and receiving the salvation I have to offer to you. But you gave those things up because you received the goodness that I, the truly good one, can provide. And for you who've done that, you will inherit eternal life. And for you who have done this, you will also be given things in this world to come that far exceed anything that you would have given up in this world that will pass away. Pastor Zimmer, we have about two minutes left here on the morning. Feel free to, to take us into that very last verse, how Jesus concludes, and then wrap things up for us today. So Jesus then drops this statement, many who are first will be last and the last first, and this is what we'll get to hear in our next session with your following guests, to hear about the laborers in the vineyard, this parable that Jesus will tell to explain what he means by that statement. But part of it is don't think of the way that you are ranked here in this lifetime 
the way the world might rank things as the way that things will be ranked or ordered in the world to come. There's different standards of judgment. And if you're going to be based on the standards of judgment that this world uses, you will, <laughs> you're using the wrong standard. There will be a different one used, and we'll hear about that as Jesus tells a story to kind of illustrate it. But ultimately, what we see in this discussion is, you know, what we have to do to inherit eternal life is really we need to be connected to the one who can give it. The way we obtain eternal life is that we are connected to the source of eternal life, which is not going to be our possessions. It's not going to be our property. It's not going to be our families. Even Jesus says that. The people who left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or land for his sake, those aren't the source. Those are temporal things, and they can only offer temporal things. But Jesus, the truly good one, can give us the eternal things, and that's what he calls us to actually be devoted to him and to put away those other competitors. It's going to be hard. It's always hard, and it will hurt. It will sting. And again, it, as we said earlier, it kind of pulls at the heartstrings or the soul strings, if you will. But with God, all things are possible. And as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and the hearts of our listeners then we can answer that call that Jesus gives to come follow him and to enter into that eternal life that he has to give. Pastor Luke Zimmerman is the pastor at Calvary Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. Pastor Zimmerman, thank you for your time today. You're very welcome. Glad to do it. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.